Sweet Jesus, thank you for this privilege to study. Thank you for how enriching this chapter has been for Amen. me personally. And I pray that as we have this time together, that we would be even closer to Jesus than when we first read it. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to turn to Mark chapter 1, if you'd like to join me there, Mark chapter 1. And I'm going to start reading just after the call of the disciples. So that's the call by the sea, which we looked at, was that yesterday or the day before? So that ends in verse 20. I'm going to read from Mark chapter 1, verses 21, all the way down to 39. So it's about 18 verses, and um, I'll read through it rather quickly. And this is, as I say, today's chapter is based on a composite of Matthew and Mark and Luke. And I think Mark does a really good job of sort of capturing, I don't want to say too much here, but the idea is, is that the record that we have of what Jesus did in the Gospels is just a snapshot. I mean, these are just some of the things that Jesus did. He did so much more. I mean, what does John, John say? That the, the books yeah. couldn't contain, yeah. right? All of the things that Jesus did. And so what I like about this chapter is it's a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of this. And so you get that feel here. Yeah. I'm in Mark chapter one, beginning in verse 21. Then they went out, excuse me, then they went into Capernaum, which is of course the title of our chapter today, right? Yeah. At Capernaum. Then they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out and said, leave us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Verse 35, now in the morning, having risen a long while before the daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, everybody's looking for you. But he said, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Wow. Wow. Right? Busy stuff. Busy. Busy, busy. So that is the section there in the Gospel of Mark that, that gives us a real sense for how Ellen White shaped this chapter. And as with most chapters, let's see, we're in chapter 26 today, so at Capernaum, most chapters, she'll have a section here where she, it'll say based on you know, John yeah. 4, John 3. We don't have that here because, again, it's a composite from a variety of sort of Stories, situations, healings in the Gospels, but primarily 
Um, it's here in Mark. Most of it's covered here in Mark chapter one, the section that we just read. And so we're going to just kind of go through this and I'm looking over at, at yours. D. I, was, I wanted to look at your version. Look at this. How oh, you, you wanted to look at, yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, look at that. I mean, it's just, what does yours look like? Same, same. Bunch of underlining and numbering. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I don't know your word. You don't know my word and we've got a lot to cover. So let's get started. Um, I'm just going to read the first paragraph here. I'm on page 280 of the types and symbols, 252 of the original. And uh, I, hope, I hope you're ready because this is going to be good. This is going to be good and dense yeah. and interactive. So paragraph one, it says at Capernaum, which by the way, I don't know if you looked up where Capernaum is on a map, but it's basically on the north, slightly on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. It's about 20 miles from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. So a long day's walk from Nazareth. And the contrast here is with the unwelcome. Remember, that was actually our word for when Jesus came to Nazareth. Is this not the carpenter's son? And I assign a word every day. My word for that day was unwelcome because he was so unwelcome in Nazareth. But the opposite is true here in Capernaum. Yeah. And so it says at Capernaum, Jesus dwelt in the intervals of his journeys to and fro, and it came to be known as, quote, his own city. It was on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and near the borders of the beautiful plain of Gennesaret, if not actually upon it. I want to start by asking, Dee, have you been to the Holy Land? Have you been to... Mm -hmm. Me neither. No. I haven't yet been there either, but by Let's the... grace, Yeah, well, by the grace of God, I want to lead a tour there. Nathan and I shook on it in either late this year or early next year. So um, you should come with us. Come join us on a tour of the Holy Land. It'd be amazing. Wouldn't that be great? So, yeah. so Dee and I haven't been there, but we can get a picture in our mind's eye. Maybe you have been there. Maybe you've been to this very place. And what I did in order to sort of keep track of this chapter is, I don't typically do this. I typically write in red, but I did write in the margin here several examples of black, just so I could sort of keep track of what was happening. And the first one, two, three... Three and a half pages for me, I just wrote Jesus, excuse me, general, this is sort of a general treatment of Jesus' teaching and tone and temperament, right? She spends a lot of time talking about Jesus' tone, Jesus' temperament, and Jesus' teaching. And so, did you find it was a little difficult to sort of keep track of the flow of the chapter? Yeah, actually the beginning chapter for me was more about busyness. Like when I first started reading, the word that came to my mind that I thought maybe this would be the word would be like buzz. Mm. Like the buzz of the town is that this guy's here and he's he's changing everybody's perspective. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of statements of contrast. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's a, it's a thoroughfare of travel. So yeah. it's a metropolitan area where people come and go. Mm -hmm. And then the stir of their busy life yeah. right, is where Jesus came in. Um, but... This, this was going to be like a, a launching pad. From here, these lessons, these healings, these miracles would go to other places. Yeah, yeah. So I was kind of looking more at the impact and the communal response whenever I read this part here. Yeah, you thought that's where it was going to go. Yeah. And it does, it does spend some time there. I wrote uh, where you were sort of underlining here at the bottom of page 280, 252 of the original. I just wrote in the margin here, strategic. Yeah, for sure. You know, Jesus is obviously very strategic here. She talks about, as you said, it was a great thoroughfare of travel. And then I underlined, because I have a real sensitivity to this, because I'm deeply passionate about Jesus as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, that in you all the families of the earth would be blessed. She says Jesus could meet all nations, 
The next page, she says, other countries and his mission could be brought before the world. Mm -hmm. And so without saying it, she's here speaking to, as she does again and again and again, as we've seen, to those great Abrahamic promises. It was never parochial. It was never insular. It was always global. Right. And the, even heaven itself was astir with interest. Yeah, I like, underline that what's too. What's happening here is such uh, a topic of interest and so monumental that everyone's paying attention to Capernaum right now. Heaven yeah, and that's Earth. good. Yeah. yeah, one of the things that happens in this chapter is she talks about how heaven and earth are so closely linked. And then, of course, where that goes in the second part of the chapter is into Jesus' conflict with unseen forces, including demonic forces. But yeah, you're right. So, so everybody in Capernaum is paying attention to Jesus. Lots of people yeah. in Galilee are paying attention to Jesus. And she says, well, so are all the angelic host, yeah. right? So, which makes a lot of sense, right? Like this is the incarnation of God who's come to earth, right? As we looked yesterday in the, by the sea, was that yesterday? Yeah, the call by the sea. She has this great line where Jesus, when he steps into the boat, you know, to push away from the pressure of the people, she just has this line where she says, what a scene to contemplate, yeah. right? Like God in flesh, God hanging out with people, God talking to people, God sympathizing with people, God as a man. And so the angels, you know, Paul says that, the things that angels desire to look into. So, okay. Yeah, this is like a great moment of interest. And I think this is the first place where Jesus like fully and powerfully reveals what he came for and what he's about. Like mm. I think at least so far in Desire of Ages, he's done some powerful things, but I just feel like in this stage, I'm not gonna say he's flexing or showing off, but he's making it abundantly clear. This is what I came here for. I'm showing you what God wanted me to do and what he's about. It's just this powerful public declaration in a way that it, for me, this seems like the first big push um, in his ministry like yeah, this. Yeah, no, that's good. There, there have been, because we've been largely on the track of the Gospel of John, which were kind of these private conversations, yeah. not real public, right? Because we had the, the small miracle. It came, of course, now, obviously, the cleansing of the temple was big, right? right? That was right. public. But a private conversation with Nicodemus, a private conversation with the Samaritan woman. But here, you're right. Like in the synoptic tradition, especially in, I mean, you're only in Mark chapter one, right? right? And he's just fully, there's only 16 chapters in Mark, so Mark has to compress everything, right. which he does, right? Mark's favorite word is like immediately, 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 immediately. And so, yeah, you're right. This is the declaration. This is who I am. This is why I'm here. And you're right about the word contrast. Very significant contrast between the teaching of Jesus, the approach of Jesus, as I say, the tone, temperament, and yeah. teaching of Jesus with the religious leaders of the day, which we'll and eventually get to. eventually with Satan, yeah. Yeah, very good. Very, very good. Um, one thing that I thought was really cool, this is a crossover between the Gospel of John, the tradition of John, and the synoptic tradition. I really like this is that she mentions that the nobleman's son, remember in John chapter four, the, the nobleman came and said, I have a son who's grievously ill. Remember Jesus said, except you see signs and wonders. Well, I had forgotten that happened in Capernaum. Mm -hmm. And so she yeah. actually says there on page 281, 253 of the original, in Capernaum, the nobleman's son whom Christ had healed was a witness to his power. Yeah. Right? So it makes yeah. sense that Jesus would have good reception there, yeah. good positive energy in fact, the energy is so positive and his reception is so positive and upbeat that weirdly, strategically, Jesus actually leaves Capernaum because there was the potential that eventually, at the end of the chapter that, that people could misunderstand why he had come and what he was there to do. Yeah, and it was super disappointing. Like, why is he leaving when things are going so Yeah, well? things are going great. Yeah, Jesus the city's aroused at this stage in that paragraph, she says. Yeah, that's right. They deter people away, like standing room only, 
fire code, sorry folks, you gotta leave. And so like, it's, it's a peak interest and that beachhead was first the healing of his son. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's a great way to say it, that beachhead. Um, then in the next few paragraphs, this is where she starts to get into Jesus teaching as significantly and you know unquestionably contrasted with the teaching of the religious leaders. And we've already seen Jesus come into preliminary conflict with the religious leaders, right? The cleansing at the temple being the obvious example of that. And that incredible monologue in John 5 where it's like, you search the scriptures because in them, you know, so Jesus has had these sort of, but here what, what, what we're seeing is just sort of a big overview, like the way that Jesus taught, his tone, his teaching, again, his temperament. And she uses a lot of very unflattering words yeah. to describe the teaching and the methodology of the religious leaders of the day. Did any of that pop yeah. out to you? All over the place. To them, the word of God possessed no vital power. Mm. It was just bland. This is paragraph one, two, three, or four in that. Uh, page 253, page 253 of the original, 281. Yeah. Um, so they had no power within them. And you get a phone call. Yeah. Say, hey man, I'm doing DA with DA. So, but no inspiration from God stirred their own hearts or from their hearers. So yeah. they, they were big on the law. They were big upon the expectations of God, but literally nothing was stirring their hearts. Their own hearts. Let alone the hearers. Like if it doesn't move you, how's it going to move me? Great. Uh, was kind of the point that she's alluding to She calls to it cold and formal. Yes. Ooh. Talk about two words that you do not want in juxtaposition. Cold and formal. Yeah. Yeah. You get a feel that... Part of the reason that Jesus was so wildly popular is because he was so totally different. He was warm. Yeah. She actually says that. She yes. says he was, in fact, I'm not going to, yeah, I keep wanting to jump ahead. I keep wanting to jump ahead. I did love this yeah. line though. And I just wrote yes with an exclamation point in the margin. The next paragraph. Yeah. Jesus had nothing to do with the various subjects of dissension among the Jews. It was his work to present the truth. I like that. Yeah. So they're having their rabbinical squabbles and debates about this and that within the rabbinical tradition. And Jesus is like, yeah, nah, nothing to do with it. Y'all can keep that. I'm not interested. I'm not interested. Yeah. And that like never before at the, at the end of that paragraph had his hearers perceived such a depth of meaning in the word of God. What an indictment. Like yeah. no one is being moved or stirred by your teachings. Yes. This guy shows up and the first thing out of his mouth blows people's minds. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. she literally says the scriptures came to men as a new revelation. Yeah. And, and by the way, I'm sure you've had the same experience, Dee. I have met people myself who have been generational Christians, raised in the faith, but then they'll hear a sermon or they'll yeah. read a book or they'll come to a seminar and they'll literally say things like, I had no idea. I've been in the church my whole life. I've never heard I've never heard that. that. Yeah. Right? And of course, the that, the thing that is not some innovative, you know, hermeneutical approach, it's Jesus. Jesus mm -hmm. is the thing. Yeah. And so Jesus is teaching in such a radical, wonderful, contrasted, different way. It's not just what he's saying. It's the way he's saying it. And as we talked about yesterday, people pressed into his, they just wanted to be near him. And who he was, like the very next paragraph, it says he met people oh, on their own ground. I underline that. But the Pharisees and Sadducees says, you need to come to us. Yeah, you need do to. Do it our way. Yeah. And then you'll find it. And Jesus, no, I'm willing to condescend to you. The incarnation makes that point. I'm coming to you. And I'm acquainted. I'm not just here because I'm concerned about your perplexities. I'm acquainted. Acquainted. With I'm entering into word. that. And so he made truth beautiful oh, by yes. presenting it in its most direct and simple way. Right there. Yeah. He made truth beautiful. He made truth beautiful. Yeah. It would not be 
inaccurate to say that the religious leaders of Jesus' day made truth ugly. Absolutely. They made the scriptures... In fact, I actually received a, a text from a friend of mine this morning who had a situation with his child, and he was saying, hey, look, this is the situation that happened. What should I do? And the idea was maybe they were going to make him write a verse of scripture over and over again, you know, like he'd done something he should have done. He was a young boy. And what I said was, is I said, I don't love that because what you don't want to do is cause your child to look with resentment on yeah. scripture. You don't want scripture to be a punishment. Right. And that's kind of what is happening here. It's a little illustration of people got to the place where they're like, ah, uh, yeah, nah. And by yeah. the way, that's the way a lot of people feel today. Yeah. Right? You'd say to people, oh, I'm a pastor, oh, I'm a Christian, oh, I run a ministry, and it's astonishing. There's a high number of people that just... Yeah. Because they make assumptions about the kinds of things that you're going to believe, the kinds of things you're going to say, the kind of God you believed in. And Jesus faced that. Yeah. Right? When Je but his tone, his temperament, his teaching broke down those barriers, and people heard the words of Scripture. She says, like, they were a new revelation. A new revelation. The Pharisees and Sadducees were monotonous in the next page. It says. Yep. So now we're on page 282, 254 of the original. The monotonous tone of the rabbis did nothing to them. But his teachings were simple. Like, that was the thing. Like, there is beauty in simplicity. It's not It's not yes. a lack of maturity or spirituality to do something simple. Yes. And I think that's part of what makes it more digestible and beautiful to the people. Mm. It's not something lost in the library somewhere. Like, you, this lands in my living room. This, is, this can relate to me here. Not just intellectually, but mm. practically. I like the way you say that. Not lost in the library, but it lands in the living room. Yeah. That's hot. <laughs> That's good yeah. alliteration. Yeah. Um, I wrote, and I have found myself occasionally writing the word funny. <laughs> I write the word funny in the margin occasionally. Yeah. And I found myself writing the word funny. It's, it's sad funny, right. but it's still funny. The rabbis spoke with doubt and hesitancy as if the scriptures might be interpreted to mean one thing or exactly the opposite. They don't even know what <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, they are so yeah. lost in their own, the intermingling of their own religious teachings and ceremonies and rabbinical traditions that when they read scripture, that uh, maybe it means this or maybe it means the exact opposite. And Jesus comes, as you said, speaking simply, plainly, profoundly, powerfully, and people are attracted, yeah. again, to the difference. To the difference. And she continues because she says, they spoke with doubt and hesitancy as the scriptures might be interpreted to mean one thing or another or the opposite. But the hearers were daily involved in greater uncertainty. Mm. So like the, the ones who should be helping people in uncertainty are muddying the waters. Correct. And so when Jesus comes, he teaches with authority. And I think that's why they keep saying oh. that. He teaches with such authority. He teaches with such authority. Like, yep. He I actually underlined thinks it. this is true. Yep. He actually thinks that this can change your life and that it's actually true. Yeah, it's not just cold and formal yeah. and detached, academic. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. By the way, I underlined in that whole section there, authority, she uses authority, 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 authority yeah. over and over again. And of course, she's picking up on Mark. And, you know, that's the response of the people in, in the wake of the Sermon on the Mount. The people were astonished at his teaching because he didn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees, but as one having authority. Yeah. Because remember, he says, and we'll get there eventually, six times, you have heard, but I say. You have heard, but I say. You have heard, but I say. And Jesus here cuts with surgical precision, and he does not spare. No. He does not spare. He cuts right across the grain of these religious traditions that were actually disenchanting people yeah. toward the God that Jesus was and came to represent. And he was 
He wasn't happy about it, but but she makes this great point where she says, yet he was earnest rather than vehement. Wasn't argumentative. He he was definitive, but not argumentative. Mm. It was clear to him. But he wasn't saying these guys are idiots. Like he didn't shame. Because he them. wanted to save them too. Yeah, and and he he knew their walls would go up if he went right at them and shamed them. So he just spoke in clarity that was undeniable because the text says this: God works this way or whatever. Mm. No, I like that. Um, then I I I loved this line here about how Jesus sought to break the spell of infatuation, which keeps men absorbed in earthly things. Yes, I yeah. love that too. Did you get this one? In every theme, God, God was, was revealed. revealed. Beautiful. And he, this is used multiple times, this idea that Jesus was coming to reveal the Father or yeah. the character of the Father. Mm. Or in them, God was revealed. So it wasn't even just a teaching or representing his own character that the teachings were true. All of those teachings and of Jesus were to point to what the Father is yeah. actually like. To, yeah. to try and rescue, and I think that's yeah. exactly the right word. By the way, the word redeem is basically the word rescue. To, to rescue the character of God from these... The, the charges, both the satanic charges in the terms of the larger great controversy, and the bad but, stewards. but even yeah. just the bad stewardship, yeah. poor stewardship, drowning the great truth of scripture in formalism, coldness, academic detachment, and Jesus shows up. He's warm, he's available, he's approachable, he's straightforward, but he's, he's smiling. He's you know, little relatable. kids on his lap, he's relatable, and they're like, yeah, I'll take that version of... You know, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, people. Absolutely. I want that one. I'll take that one. Yeah. Um, then she does this thing in that same paragraph, page 282, still there, 254 of the original. He taught that heaven and earth are linked together. And I underline that and then put a little arrow because that's kind of where she goes next. She, yeah. I think she uses that as a bit of a diving board because she's going to be heading toward the link in terms of the spiritual world as well. And mm-hmm. Jesus is going to find himself in direct conflict, not only with seen forces of darkness, but with unseen forces of darkness. And the practicality of it, because it it makes men better to perform the duties of everyday life. Like, you're not just learning about eternal realities. It will make you a better person. Better person. Yeah. I love that. Um, She says his messages of mercy were varied to suit his audience. We see examples of that. In fact, we saw an example just yesterday. When Jesus is speaking to fishermen on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, what does he say? Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. When Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, what did he say? You're coming looking for water. The water that I have will be such that it will permanently slake your thirst. So it would have been weird if Jesus would have said to the woman at the well, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. She would have been like, come again? Or if he would have said to, you know, Peter and James and John there on the shores of the Galilee, I have water that will quench your thirst. I mean, it would have been meaningful, but it wouldn't have struck that chord that was so contextual. He knew his audience. He knew his audience. He knew who he was speaking to. And so I like that. He varied uh, his messages to suit, messages of mercy to suit his audience. Um, Then I want to bring this out because I've mentioned it twice before. She says that he had a tact to meet prejudiced minds. And I wrote here in the margin, you might want to make a note of that, page 93 and page 201 this is now at least the third time that Ellen White has expressly used the word tact. I want you just to think about how cool that is. God incarnate is tactful. Yeah. Now, if I was God, <laughs> if I was God, I would not be very tactful. I have every right to snap my suspenders <laughs> and put my foot down. 
But he doesn't. No, that's no. right. I mean, yeah. if I was, I'd show up and be like, okay, so here's the deal. Here's how it's going to go, folks. Yeah, I'm God, and I'm setting the... But we can all thank the good Lord that I'm not God and you're not God and D is not God, that Jesus is God. Yeah, the good news is that God is just like Jesus, not Amen. like me. Amen, thank the Lord. And so yeah. I just love this idea that he exercised tact, yeah. situational awareness and appropriateness. And we see that instance after instance after instance in the gospels. Again, even with the people that were his self-styled antagonists, He's trying to reach them even while they're vigorously opposing him. Yeah. The guy's incredible. You know, it's almost like he's God in the flesh. Yeah. It's almost like he yeah. deserves our total loyalty, allegiance, and worship. He, <laughs> he didn't fit in a box, and he was willing to jump yes. in any box to pull people out of it. Yeah. I love uh, next page 283, 255. If I skip over anything that you love, yeah. you just reel me right back. Just that they want their attention. That word attention just... Continuing in the first like third of this chapter. A lot of attention. Everyone's paying attention to Jesus. Mm. Yeah. Back to your buzz. You're yeah. About the buzz, the yeah. stir. Okay, yeah, yeah good. Very good. Um, I, I love the next paragraph that he never flattered men. Yes. Because I, like the Pharisees were always about flattery. And so the people may come to expect like, oh, like this is how he works. This is what he wants. He's, no, 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 no. That's not why I'm here. I'm not about that life. Yeah, that beautiful. It's funny because a little bit later in Desire of Ages, she's going to say, Jesus I don't remember what chapter it is, but she literally says it's a direct quote. I memorized it years ago. Jesus never spoke a word of flattery. Mm -hmm. And I was like, because I love to compliment people. It's just, I don't know. It's just a part of, I see my sons doing it. I just love to say, hey, I like the way you said that, or that looks really good on you, or I don't know. It's just a part, I don't know. It'd be interesting to explore that and try to figure out why it is, but I love the, the biblical word for this is edifying, literally to build up. I like mm-hmm. to, and so when I read that Jesus never flattered people, I was a little disturbed because I thought, well, I love to affirm people and to encourage people and to build them up. So I went and looked up the word flattery. This is years ago. And the word flattery means to say something that is purposefully disingenuous for the sake of gaining a conversational advantage yeah. or a social advantage. Well, I don't do that either. No, there's a massive difference. Yeah, like if I say D, that was really well said, you know, lost in the library or landed in the living room. I'm not saying that to curry favor with you. I just want you to know that was really well said. Right. And I want to build you up. Right. That's different than... It's different. Yeah. So Jesus had no problem building up people, encouraging people, but that's very different from flattering disingenuously, inauthentically for the purpose of gaining a social advantage mm-hmm. or currying favor with somebody. Jesus didn't do that. He wasn't a politician. Mm -hmm. He was a man of principle. I love the last line in that paragraph there. This is again, page 283, 255. He even made the heathen to understand that he had a message for them. And we were just there, what, two chapters ago, the heathen, the heathen, the heathen, the heathen. Is this not the carpenters on that chapter? And we talked about how, and again, this is back to my real passion and burden for the Abrahamic promise, the original Abrahamic promise was that God's plan was to bless the world. And Jesus shows up as Israel. Now we're not fully there yet, but he takes on, he embodies what God's intention and plan for Israel always was, which was not to be an insular, cold, formal, segregated, secluded people cut off from the ceremonially unclean. It was to be doing what Jesus is doing, mingling, connecting, interacting, sharing, and so I just love this fact that Jesus always has in mind, in fact, even the strategic location of Capernaum and the thoroughfares that pass through there, he's not thinking in the box. No. 
He's thinking globally. Yeah. He's thinking the people, not just in the next town or the next village, he's thinking people in the next country. Yeah, he's always thinking that. Where the gift of tongues is manifested is in towns just like Capernaum. Yes. Hubs of, of commerce. Oh, good word, hub. Come. Like that's, you see that. Like the, he's so intentional and smart and strategic. He's not just, like though he could do work in the lonely places, and eventually he does. Yeah, true, um, true. Because there was too much heat on him. But he also understood that if I need to get this work out, the best places strategically choose these places to have that that form of influence. And, and even going back to the Abrahamic promise, the location of Israel, Israel yes. was at the convergence of the Asian, European, and African continents. I mean, right. it was designed to be right on the major thoroughfares of travel so the people would become acquainted with the goodness of Yahweh. Right. You would trip over the goodness of God everywhere you went. Ooh. Like everywhere in commerce. Tripping over the goodness of God. D, you're on fire this morning. <laughs> Um, okay, now the next paragraph, bro. The paragraph that begins with his tender compassion. Okay, there are at least one, two, three, four, five, six phrases in this paragraph that just popped to me. I mean, this is beautiful, man. You ready for these phrases? An atmosphere of peace, a sweet, sympathetic spirit. He linked his interests with theirs as a faithful, tender friend that the comfort of his love, so five phrases, yeah. the com I just thought, I love this guy. And what was the result? I love this guy. And the result of that was that people were drew to him and attracted. Correct. And large congregations came. Yes. Like, who he was is what attracted people. And so how he taught is kind of how she starts. Now she kind of starts focusing on who he was as a person, like how he interacted with people, what he showed about his character and his yes. compassion. Yes. And you see that, and then, because like when they go into the, the demoniac, like that's one of the next sections, like how he dealt with people mm. in different phases of life. Yeah, that was one of my favorite sections too. I just, I just, think of each of those phrases, an atmosphere of peace. And that was in the midst of angry people. Exactly. Who hated his guts. He kept his peace. I, I have this yeah. feature about me that, and maybe you have something similar to this, that when I get in a, like a tense meeting or a difficult meeting, or I've got to advocate for a situation which do, you do sometimes get in difficult situations as a, a in pastoral ministry. If it's really intense, like if it's up to about the level of an eight, I'm fine. But if it gets to that nine, ten, I have this really weird thing that happens. My lip starts to quiver involuntarily. Oh, yeah. Do you have anything like that? Like I, any little? When I get nervous, my legs shake a bit. Yeah, and. Yeah. And I, I often will think to myself, my body is disobeying me right now. And that then creates this anxiety and I'm not in an atmosphere of peace. Yeah. Jesus in the height of the most difficult, conflicted situations where he's, unlike me, where I'm often like, I'm on the side of this person and I think this person is wrong. Jesus is on the side of everybody. I try to be as a minister, but I don't always succeed. And so Jesus has to walk this incredible fine line, this balance and yet he's surrounded by an atmosphere of peace in the midst of this incredible conflict. Yeah. He's the prince of peace. Mm. And then a sweet, sympathetic spirit. Friends, I just want you to hear this. God has a sweet, sympathetic spirit. Amen. Just hear that. Amen. Let that wash over your soul right now. God's attitude, God's spirit is a sweet, sympathetic spirit. I just, I just loved all of that. This so next good. paragraph is, is so relevant to me as a preacher. Like Jesus watched with deep earnestness the changing countenances of his hearers. Mm. So I hate preaching on Zoom. But, but the faces that expressed interest and pleasure gave him great satisfaction. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that he was doing it to get a bunch of amens out of people right. so he could fill his own ego. He was giving of himself as he was preaching and sharing with the people. Beautiful. And to see that those seeds were not falling on hardened soil 
in Krilled his soul. Beautiful. And, and it was just a, just a practical affirmation for me that I'm not crazy or needy to feel that way um, whenever no. I have that in my own ministry. And, and then the last sentence there, she says, yeah. but when he saw men refuse the message of peace, his heart was pierced to the very depths. Yeah. And I wrote down, because he alone understood the value of a soul and the cost of the gospel. Right. So this isn't like I'm selling you a widget or I'm selling you a vacuum cleaner or I'm trying to get you to stay at my Airbnb or whatever. And then you say, yeah, nah, because there's other widgets to buy and other Airbnbs to stay at. If you turn away from Jesus, it's like Peter said, where would we go? There's nowhere to go. So he felt acutely and keenly when people turn from him. And by the way, Jesus was not like, oh, you, you missed your chance. People could circle back around and circle back around and circle back around. But he knew that every time someone's like, yeah, nah, it would make it easier to be, yeah, nah, next time. And so it pierced him. Yeah. Pierced him to his... You don't know how long you have, right? Like, my, my window is short of what I'm doing here. Correct. You know, I also appreciate in the middle how his eye was sweeping over the congregation and that when he would see people who were there that he'd recognized before and he saw interest in them, ah, yeah, yeah, he yeah. saw in them, first of all, his countenance lifted up with joy and he saw in them hopeful subjects, subjects. for his kingdom. Yeah. The faith of Jesus I remember seeing that. something in them. And like, I don't know if you ever had those moments where like you just see a tender-hearted individual and something happens on the inside of you, you just get warm and fuzzy. Yeah. Like you just see that this person truly is being moved by the Spirit of God and it warms your heart what God is doing in that yeah. person's heart. I've, I've had that experience like when I'm preaching evangelistic meetings and then you see all the people on the first night and then when you see people on the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh night, you get to recognize those faces and you're just thrilled. Mm -hmm. Not because it's some affirmation of your preaching acumen or ability, but because people are responding to the gospel. You're making a willful choice to stay here yeah. and keep growing. Yeah. So then I'm in the next page, page 284, 256. I'm back in my black pen, which again, I rarely do here. And I just wrote demoniac and conflict with darkness. So we've kind of left that section where she's describing the sort of tone and temperament and teaching of Jesus. And then now she goes specifically into that instance where this demoniac in a synagogue calls out and Jesus rebukes him. This is, this is one of my favorite stories in Scripture. Okay, well then, launch us. Get us started here. Um, well, I just, we can read the story first, and I'll give what I feel is a really practical and helpful illustration of this. But the fact that this guy's in a church service, imagine, uh, I don't know if you've ever had this. I've had this a couple times where there's like clearly a demonic influence happening in the congregation while you're preaching. Mm. Somebody has like, you know, something that looks like they're seizing or whatever. But you can tell it's a whole different scenario than just like a physical right. scenario. And like, it just makes shivers go up your spine. It mm. makes you uncomfortable. It's a massive distraction. And so what do you do in this moment? And Jesus rectifies the situation. He heals the guy, but no one in the room knows what was really going on inside of the guy. Mm. Because what she alludes to later is the fact that this guy, and I don't want to steal her language because hers is so much better than mine, but the guy is desperate to receive help from Jesus. And when he opens his mouth to ask for help, what comes out of his mouth is demonic nonsense. Right. And Jesus hears the plea for help through that nonsense and saves him and heals Thank him you. anyway. And Thank I'm so you. thankful for Thank this. Thank you. Where Paul says, we don't know how to pray as we ought, right? But that the Spirit prays with groans. It can't even be uttered. And in those Preach. moments where you feel, I was just counseling a young person this week who just felt like, I can't pray right now. I can't even think. And I told him this story. Maybe the only thing that comes out of your heart right now when you pray is a cry for help, but no words can come. You can't even focus. That's good enough. Lord, save me, I perish. Yeah. And if you can't Lord, even verbalize me, those Five words. words, if the words that come out of your mouth are that I hate you and leave me alone, 
but in your heart you really want help, he still hears the plea for help. Yeah, that's a great point you make. I can remember when, because I had, I had three dads in my life, right? So my first, my biological dad I never met. He left when I was three weeks old. I had a second dad who was my dad for a few years and then left me and my brother when my brother was like five or six and I was like eight or nine. Then my mom married for the third time and she married this guy named Richard Asherick. And I used to tell him, because he was now the third man in my life. And then I had my grandfather who was really like a father to me. I hated him, or at least I thought I did. And I would say to him, I hate you. I hate you because I, he's now the third man in my life. I'm barely 10 years old. And, but he, I tell you, and he's still alive to this day and he's one of the most beautiful, I mean, my sister was on earlier. Dad, she says, exactly, exactly. Elizabeth, man, I, I just got teary-eyed there, Liz, seeing you do that. Wow. I, I, I used to, when I look at my dad now, my dad is literally one of my heroes. I, the, the kindness, the tenderness, I mean, he's stubborn, you know, he's, he is what he is, but he loved me and my brother and his two children and my, our sister, my sister, his daughter, Elizabeth. He loved us. She says, our dad is the best. Mm. But, but even he was mature enough and wise enough and smart enough to see the situation that when I, as an 11-year-old, 10-year-old boy was saying, I hate you. He knew that what I was really saying is, I hate what's happened to me in my life up to this point, and he loved me through it. Right. He was showing Jesus. That's Jesus. Yeah. When we say, even if we say the wrong thing, God is capable of hearing not what our mouth says, but what our heart is feeling. The true heart's cry. Come on now. That's the God we serve, my friends. Because in our, in our conviction, we deflect we get angry. We try to change the topic because we don't want to deal with it. But if there's any spark of hope in our hearts yes. that wants something, heaven reaches through and busts through that wall mm. and acts. And I'm so thankful for that. This is why we can have what we have in the Psalms. We can have yeah. the Spirit inspiring the psalmist. Psalm 109. To Dude say is mad. Yeah. yeah, to say things like, are you blind that you can't hear me? Are you deaf? Or are you blind that you can't see me? Are you deaf that you can't hear me? Like, Ooh, you know, I used to be uncomfortable early on in my Christian journey with some of the Psalms. I'm like, it's full on, right? It's very emotional, yeah. both on the positive and on the negative, both on the great faith and the great doubt. And it's because in the cry for help, God not only hears the words our mouth says, he hears the things that we, as you said in Romans 8, we can't give voice to yeah. with, with groanings, Paul says, that cannot be uttered. And I'm so thankful that I have a dad that was able to hear not just what I was saying, but he modeled for me God's love when he saw not what I was saying, but what I meant. Yeah. And that's what Jesus does here. When this demoniac says, blah, 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 blah. Right. Jesus hears, oh, that's a cry for help. Yeah. And we need to hear when people lash out at us or lash out at God or lash out at religion, I think our natural instinct is to get defensive and come to, but, but maybe we need to hear, hey, this See, is a cry, a cry for, for help. help. Yeah. Well, we said that at the same time, though. It was good. good. I like that. No, I, same thing. Like my, my dad bore along with me far longer than anybody ever should have as I was starting my Christian journey. And it was because of that tenacity and that willingness to keep giving and loving and supporting that I'm even here now. I wouldn't have done it were it not for that. And those, those pictures that God gives us through those key people in our lives, yeah, it, it's what sets the bedrock. It's what sets your compass to true north. That even when things go south, they're not going as you want them to, you know where home is. And, and this guy, he, he gave what Ooh. he had. And what he had was demonic nonsense. But heaven still viewed that as enough. You know where home is. Yeah. Friends, you know where home is. This is Jesus. 
This is Peter and Jesus in John 6. We'll get there eventually. Will you also go away? Lord, to whom should we go? You know where home is. So in this section here where she talks about the demoniac healing and then she talks about just in general the healing of people that were demon-possessed or troubled, this word comes up again and again and again. It's the word control. Control, 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 control of his victim. Longed for freedom from Satan's control. And then the corollary or the reverse of the control was the word freedom, free, freedom, free, freedom, and a synonym of that, deliverance. That really popped out to me. All of these emphases on how Jesus sets us free from the things that are dark, from the things that trouble us, from the things that hurt us. He gives deliverance. He gives freedom. And there are powers that are seeking to control us. And they're not always so obviously like demonic. That's actually rare. I have encountered that some in my ministry, but it's the rare exception. But I do encounter people that are controlled by lust, people that are controlled by materialism, people that are controlled by escapism. Like it doesn't, being controlled by the powers of darkness does not mean that you're a demon-possessed person frothing at the mouth. That can't happen. That can't happen, but it's rare. Far more regular is that people are just controlled by, what does Paul call Satan? The prince of the power of the air, right? Like the whole atmosphere is bent towards selfishness. It's bent toward me. It's bent toward my desires, my needs, my pleasures. And then you have a whole corporate marketing culture that's basically trying to create maximal happiness by consumerism. All of that is dark. Me first. All of that is dark. All of that is, and I, I hope you'll hear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying here. It's all satanic. And I don't mean satanic in like the death metal I don't mean that kind of satanic. What I mean is it's satanic in the sense that it's all bent inward. Yeah. It's all bent to me. The law of his kingdom is selfishness at his base foundation. Exactly. Yeah. And the law of Christ's kingdom is selflessness. That's right. Other-centered love. Yeah. No, and you see this. The word I kept seeing throughout this whole chapter is the word, um, well, I'll just phrase it this way. That there's like, she uses the word power in multiple contexts. The word in, power. The word power. Okay. She uses it a lot. And she uses it in, in the power of Satan or the power of God or set him free from the power of darkness. Mm. That there seems to be this warring of kingdoms and this warring of authority. Right? Yeah. Authority yeah, 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 and power yeah, 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 yeah. are used regularly throughout the chapter where they get yeah. this idea of yeah. the authority of the Pharisees really didn't have much authority compared to the authority of Jesus. And then you see the power of Satan and then the power of Jesus to set him free or that they felt powerless against the forces of darkness. And so that, that idea of warfare and, and conflict advancement and conflict... You see that. That contrast of power is what I see throughout. Oh, that's really good. And it's really highlighted here. It's highlighted there. Yeah, she, she, she uses the word power. Power here, power here. So the power of Christ, the power of Satan, for instance. Yeah. And, and, and even when the, the demon speaks, he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I know your authority is what he's saying. Mm. I know what authority you have. And when Jesus cast the demons out of the guy at the yeah, galleries, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, saying, you know, don't cast me out into the things. And so I don't, don't cast me into, you know, cast me into the pigs. Don't cast me into the abyss. So the demons fear the authority of Christ. And, and yeah. what Jesus is doing in this whole chapter is pushing forward and making it abundantly clear. I have authority. Mm. I have power. And so what drew people to him was the fact that what did have power over them no longer does when we come into Jesus's presence. Yes. And that's why he's up, as you'll see here in a moment, why he's up the whole night healing folk. Because they realize the power that's holding me down, he can set me free from. 
Thank you, Jesus. And, and that, I think that's the, the overarching thing here. I, I love the several things you said there I really liked, but I, I want to go back to Mark 1, 24, and there's a, there's a few examples of this in the Gospels, but this one was really interesting to me. So this is when the demoniac speaks out, right? This is the cry for help. Yeah. But the, one of the things that the demon says is so remarkable. It says, leave us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? Did you come to destroy us? In the Gadarenes account, which you mentioned, it says, did you come to torment us? Right. And the thing that's always registered with me, and this is a big sort of cosmic perspective, is because these demons are fallen angels, that's a larger biblical study that we could do. But the thing that's always impressed me about this is what must these fallen angels believe about the character of God? That God has come to destroy? The that God has one. come to torture, to torment, that God is keeping something from you. All of this shows that the great conflict here is over the character of God. What is yeah. God like? What is he actually like? And these here have obviously believed the lie. Right. The lie that God is fundamentally, to use your word, reigning by power and by control. He does reign by a power, but it's a power, like my friend Ty Gibson says, from underneath, right. not a power from above. Right. It's a power that inspires and woos and draws. It's and not liberates. a power and liberate. Yeah. It's not a power that commands and controls and coerces. And coerces. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. Okay, we're getting somewhere. Yeah. Um, so, but the demon resisted the power of Christ. It says he was roused for to long for freedom from Satan's control. This is just above paragraph. It's two fifty-six. Is like the last paragraph before that begins. Um, that he was roused to long for freedom from Satan's control, but the demon resisted the power of Christ. But then eventually. The conflict between the power of Satan and his own desire for freedom was terrible, but all this power to retain control of his victim, again, is used. Mm. Um, mm. To lose ground here would be to give Jesus a victory. Again, this implication of warfare. Yeah, 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 warfare, conflict. But the Savior spoke with authority and set the captive free. Jesus, he takes advantage, he uses his authority, not for his own benefit, but to liberate the people who are under the authority of someone else. Beautiful. And so even the demon had testified to the divine, again, power of the Savior. And so... I have a, I have a feeling that's your word. Um, no comment. No comment. No okay, we're still moving, moving, moving through. On, um, I'm going to turn the page here. Okay, so I think we've kind of covered... There are some other things that we could say, but unless you have any final words there no. on um, sort of the demoniac aspect, because then she gets on page 286, 258 of the original into the conflict specifically with the religious leaders. Yeah, I want to do one quick point. I one quick point. And it's just it. because of the, the power of concession, because this is such a practical lesson for us. I just want to draw that out, that she says that the guy never dreamed of becoming a terror to the world and the reproach of his family. Correct. He thought that his time could be spent in innocent folly, but once in the downward path, his feet rapidly descended. And then she says, remorse came too late. Yeah. By the yeah. time he saw the writing on the wall, he yeah. was so deeply entrenched that only a Christ encounter could set him free. Yes. He was so deep, and he never thought he would get there, but it was through those incremental concessions that eventually he, he was yeah, in a bad spot. No, this is a great point that you make, and it's a reminder to all of us that the decisions that we make today create the person that we will be tomorrow. Right. right? You make your decisions, and then your decisions make you. And I like to say it this way. The moral choices and consequences that face you today are such that you need to face them when they come to you, yeah. 
and make the right decisions because you have no guarantee that the, the person that you'll be tomorrow will be even capable of making or recognizing the moral choices that you face today, right? That's the incremental, fractional nature of becoming what we are, right? right? We, we, we lose as we get older and as we get in our routines and our life takes on a kind of momentum, we become what we will be. We, we take on our character, and the very best way to keep yourself elastic and plastic and pliable, like the, what is it, Jeremiah 18, right? The, the, the pot yeah, that's the in the hand yeah. of the potter is to be watered by the Spirit, is yeah. to be watered by the love of God. And yeah, this demoniac, he had no... People that end up in very dark, very terrible places, whether it's places of addiction or... Uh, you know, deep pornography or sexual... I mean, look at just what happened with this guy in Atlanta, you know, the yeah. Atlanta shooting. Yeah. Now, I don't know, I didn't pay any attention to it yet today, but I did a little bit of reading about it yesterday, and it looks like this guy basically had, like, a tremendous sexual addiction, yeah. and he found these, you know, sort of massage parlors, ostensibly massage parlors, um, that were really just, like, sort of prostitution opportunities... And he, you don't hear much about that part of the conversation. No, you don't. But he, did, he found it irresistible. And so he got to the place where he went and killed people, right. killed people because he didn't have the capacity or the resistance to say, no, here's the point. If you could go rewind back to that gentleman's life. I don't remember his name. Rewind back in his life the first time that he looked at porn. The first time that he stepped outside of God's sexual ideal, and you would have said to him, hey, 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 just, just know this. In four years' time, eight years' time, whatever that is, Sin you, is greedy. you will yeah. literally be slaying people. Yeah. He would have said, heck no, nah, no way. I'm not, I just want to look at a little porn. I just, I just need to, uh, an escapism here. I just need, I'm just trying to relax. Yeah. What happened is he didn't become the man that walked into a massage parlor and killed, what was it, eight people? He didn't become that in a day. No. He became that over time. And, and she says this great language here. She talks about how the fascinating pleasure of their early career, I'm reading now, the fascinating pleasure of their early career ends in the darkness of despair or the madness of a ruined soul. Yeah. Could anything better describe what this man in Atlanta would have been than in the darkness of despair and literally the madness of a ruined soul? The point here is not that if you looked at porn or you had a problem with porn or you were outside of God's sexual ideal or you had a problem with drugs or whatever, that you're going to end up being a, a murderer. Most people, of course not. Right. But the point is that you become cumulatively the small decisions that you make. Yeah. And that right. sin is greedy. Sin, sin is, is greedy. Yeah. It doesn't just come in and say, you know, I'm going to go this far no further. Yeah, boundaries. It's, no, it doesn't do that. Now, sin will take over your whole life and before you know it, you're an addict. Yeah. And, and by the way, Addicts, I believe, I'm a big believer that addiction is a disease yeah. and that people can be healed from addiction. But the point is, I've told my sons again and again and again and again and again, boys, the best way to never take that second drink of alcohol is to never take the first. Yeah. The best way to never have that second hit of drugs is to never take the first. The best way to never have that second look at pornography is to never have the first. Yeah, and that's the story of Lot, and that's why Jesus says, remember Lot's wife, and as it was in the days of Lot, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. It was those incremental concessions. It's the same story. And in, in Faith and Works 45.3, Ella White says that when God lets man have his own way, it's the darkest hour of his life. That when God 
turns Whoa. us over to our desires. Whoa. It's the darkest season of our experience. Whoa. So then she transitions into the Pharisees and says, that same evil spirit that tempted Jesus in the wilderness Correct. and that possessed this maniac of Capernaum controlled the unbelieving Jews, and their condition was more hopeless than that of the demoniac. Correct. For they felt no need of Jesus, and therefore were held fast under the power of Satan. That's your word. I know it's your word. Admit it. Yeah. It's got to be. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> Do you know what mine is? Yes. It's used 23 times in this chapter. Okay, there it is. Power is D's word. By the way, this just goes to show, because I heard you in the other room with your moans and groans of great pleasure and joy <laughs> in the presence of Jesus. And, uh, and, um, and you were like, I've got it down to two. Yeah. I've got it down to two words. No, but it's definitely this one. What was your other word? It was going to be authority. Authority, okay, power and authority. Okay, well, those weren't even on my list. This is what I love about DA with DA and about studying is that, by the way, the things that impressed you definitely impressed me, but they weren't the thing that made the deepest impression on me. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah. The Spirit of God speaks to and through D with his unique personality and his experiences and where he's at right now in his life. And, and Jesus says, this is what you need to hear. And then the Spirit of God speaks to me and says, well, this is what you need to hear. And so too with you and you and you and you. So I love that point that you made. You're actually just quoting her there, that she says that the the religious leaders of the day were actually in a worse position. Yeah. Ah! A more dangerous position than the religious leaders, or excuse me, than, than the, demoniac. the demoniac, because the demoniac at least knew he was in a bad way and he cried out for help, where they actually are fully self-satisfied in their self-deception. And hardened. Yeah. Hardened. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. What a lesson this is for us as a preacher and a preacher, as a teacher and a teacher. God save us from yes. becoming so self-satisfied yes, that we Lord. become self-deceived and whoa. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, so she talks about man-made traditions, observances, and then she goes on to say history is repeating. And her basic idea here is that people have scripture available to them, but they get lost in fanciful interpretations. And she uses this very interesting word here. Powerless to resist the word of Satan. They were. Yeah, that's a good word. I like that word. Yeah. And it was because they had no genuine experience. It was all knowledge-based. It was me-based. So they had no guard against temptation. Yeah, no, I like it. Um, on page 287, 258 of the original, she says this very interesting thing. I wonder if this popped to anybody else. Criticism and speculation concerning the scriptures have opened the way for spiritism and theosophy, those modernized forms of ancient heathenism, to gain a foothold even in the professed churches of our Lord Jesus Christ. Theosophy, theosophy. So you may or may not be aware, but there is something called the Theosophical Society, and it's not super popular nowadays, but it was founded in 1875. Ellen White, of course, is writing Desire of Ages in the 1890s. So this Theosophical Society was kind of this like combination of monotheism, but with this like, Theosophy literally means the divine wisdom or the wisdom of God. And it was like ecstatic, sort of miraculous encounters and experiences and wonders. And so she's saying, yeah, th that's not the thing. It's just the plain reading of scripture. And by plain, I mean Christocentric, Jesus at the center. You know, the reading of scripture as it stands, you don't need some divine ecstatic encounter, spirit, you know, being led off into some, sort of rapture, and she's concerned. And, and I think we do see some of that even today. I don't know if you've heard of the Kabbalah movement, but
but that's a that's a theosophical movement. Okay. Um, Sufism in Islam yeah. is a theosophical movement. So, and even some versions and variations of charismatic Christianity teeter over into like, yeah, and I'm not here to stand in judgment. I'm just here to say anything that causes us to step away from the plain, beautiful, Christ-centered reading of Scripture, especially if it's into an emotional, ecstatic utterance yeah. or state or rapture, that's not the thing. That is not the thing. Now, that's not to say that we can't have a powerful, emotional encounter with Jesus. I feel like I have those on, a re on the regular. Yeah. But I'm not you know, slipping away into some half-conscious state where God is revealing things to my brain. Um, no, that's not the thing. That is not the thing. And if we had time, we could go and talk about how Paul says the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You are not being whisked away into some non-conscious state by God, unless you actually literally have the gift of, the, of prophecy, which, hey, right. that's maybe. I don't have that gift. You? No. So um, I just wanted to point that out. Then I'm going to highlight this 287 here. God does not control our minds without our consent. And when mm -hmm. I read that, I was like, that's kind of weird. God does not control our minds. Well, I don't think God wants to control our minds at all, except in this sense. And I actually wrote this down. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. But mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. And literally, think about the word stronghold. It literally means a stronghold. Yeah. Right? Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts, that exalts itself, itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's what's meant by God having control of us. Not control in the coercive sense, in the force sense, in the marionette sense. No. God gave you your unique, wonderful personality and individuality. He loves the person that you are and wants you to become the best version of yourself. D. Casper is a different person than David Ashrick. And he is uniquely, irreplaceably wonderful in the sight of God, as am I, as are you. So God is not trying to rob you of your personality. God doesn't want to rob you of the control of your life to make the decisions that seem best to you. But what he does want to do is he wants to cooperate with you so that as you reach the grand, glorious picture of full humanity that you can become, that that's in cooperation with him. And in that sense, we yield control, our decisions, our desires, our temptations, our needs to him. And so I'll read that sentence again. God does not control our minds without our consent, but if we desire to know and to do his will, his, promise. his promises are ours. And then she quotes, what else? Of course, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So you might say it this way. God wants to control your mind in the sense of controlling it by the principles upon which his kingdom operates, love and liberty and freedom. He wants to control your mind to set you free to be perfectly holy and perfectly happy and perfectly yourself. As contrasted with the power and control of Satan that is coercive, it's manipulative. She uses the word captive. She uses the word dominion a lot in this chapter. Yeah. She uses the word control a lot in this chapter. And so when she uses the word control there, it's an unusual word to talk about God controlling us, but it's literally, and I don't know if you can see this. It's like that coercive. 
control, control, control. It's in response to the fact that she's just been saying Satan wants to control, to control, to control, to control, to control. God doesn't work in that way. God doesn't work that way. He wants to control in the sense that he wants us to turn our lives over to his will and his word. And then he sets us free. Yeah, absolutely. Very important to understand. And when she uses the example of people who cave in or in deep in darkness, the paragraph before that, they said, yet their condition is not hopeless. Ah, oh, yeah, I love that. And yet, I actually underline the yet. Yet, yet, he's not, his condition's not hopeless. In the last paragraph there, every man is free to choose what power. Look at that, yes. He's free to choose what power he will have to rule over him. Yes. But none have fallen so low and none are so vile, but that they can find deliverance in Christ. The demoniac yes. in the place of prayer could utter only the words of Satan, yet the heart's unspoken appeal was heard. No cry from a soul in need. Though it fall and though it fail in utterance and words, will be unheeded. And Thank that, you, that Jesus. whole section—that was your point. I literally had this whole bracket here that just says, "Bring it home, girl!" Like she's just killing it. This she's whole paragraph on fire there. for people who are hurting and discouraged and just wonder, and that none are too low that God can't reach them. And so the spirits of darkness will battle for the soul under their dominion, but the angels of God will contend for that soul Woo! with prevailing power. Woo! And then the Lord says, and then Isaiah forty-nine. That shall oh, the prey be taken from the mighty, yes. where the captives I claim the this promise all the time. Thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible be delivered. For I will contend with him that contends with you, and I will save your children. children. Yeah. Woo! That's a promise. Isaiah 49, 25. Now, that's yes. a great section. Yeah. And I love, 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 love your point, D, that even the satanic utterance that blah, 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 fell out of the demoniac's mouth, Jesus was like, that's a cry for that's help. A cry for help. Yes! Woo! If that doesn't fire you up, you guys, that is the thing. And yet the cold, formal, monotonous, religious rote of the religious leaders, Jesus can't break through that. He tries. In fact, he we're, well, that's a long way away, but finally in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus just goes for it. He goes in. Woe to you, woe to you, because he's tried everything else. Right. And so why not like straight rebuke? Swing for the fences. Swing for the fences. Yeah. If all else fails, swing for, and, and even that didn't work. So their teachings and approach. Well, did, I shouldn't say it didn't work. Well, because there true. were some of the, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I just want to correct myself. But there. even some of the preachers were obedient to the faith. Correct. The yeah. Yes, yeah. the, the soil was harder right. and it took longer because there was a lot more to unlearn. You know, people talk about Moses and Paul, the, right. you know, the two great people in, in terms of like their influence in the Old and the right. New Testament, apart from, of course, Jesus. But they had a lot to unlearn. They had a lot to unlearn. That. People yeah. forget that. Yeah. Moses went to the desert to unlearn. Yeah. Paul went to Arabia to unlearn, not just to learn. Yeah. And my experience has been, as an evangelist and as a preacher, some of the people that are the hardest to bring to Christ are people who were raised in dysfunctional Christian contexts and theologies and homes yeah. because they can't unlearn all of the, forgive my language here, all of the crap that has filled their minds in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Bible, in the name of religion, in the name of Christianity versus somebody who's just a blank slate upon yeah. whom they're just like, yeah, Jesus is awesome. But Satan has so, and, and, and false religion has so soured the minds of many toward the Bible, toward Jesus, toward religion, toward God, that even saying those words, they, too much to unlearn. Yeah, that's, that's the danger of the Laodicean virus, like, because you, you think you know, but you don't know. Yeah, and you don't even know that you don't know. No, like you, you, 
I think that the, the key point of the Laodicean message is that you're not who you think you are in every aspect of your being. Beautiful. Theologically, religiously, emotionally, intellectually. Like, you do not know yourself, yes. and that's what's so dangerous. Yes. I'm offering a solution to myself, but you don't get it. Yeah. And, and I need you to see that but so I, that I can help you. I agree with that. But yeah. one thing I do want to say, and I think this is very important, is that when people have been soured on a version of God yeah. or of religion or of the Bible or of Christianity, that is not the real thing. God understands that. Absolutely. I have to say this in as strong as language as possible. God gets that the religion and the Christianity and the Bible and even the Jesus that some people are rejecting is not the real thing. It doesn't even exist. Yeah, the illustration that I like to use is if if somebody had a neighbor by the name of David and said, oh, David was a jerk. David used to throw beer cans over my fence and David, you know, one time let my dog out and, you know, David, David did all of these terrible things. When I hear that story, I don't say... I don't become defensive because they're not talking about me. They're talking about another David. And the name Yeshua was actually Joshua. It was not an uncommon name. And there have been lots of gods in human history. And I just want you to know that God is big enough and wise enough and smart enough to know that when people are rejecting what they think is the right God but is not that God, God, he's fine with that. They've not crossed that threshold. They have not crossed that threshold. They've never met the real one. I agree. There's going to be people... And I know this is, uh, this is getting a little ahead of where we were at today, but there's going to be people who will wake up in the resurrection, find themselves in the presence of Jesus and say, as they're learning, I had no idea. I had no idea how, be- I didn't know. I, there's going to be people that thought they were atheists. No one told me it was like this. Man, I, 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 could yeah. go, I could really go off there, but I'm not going to. So then the next thing is all these people are coming to Jesus to be healed. This kind of last section, the mother-in-law. The mother-in-law, Peter's Peter. mother-in-law is healed. And then, again, there's this last stir. So it starts with a big stir, and then kind of ends with a big stir of the community. Yeah, Everyone's there's a symmetry to, to the chapter. I noticed that. Yeah. Everyone's coming to be healed. No one leaves unhealed. Never before had Capernaum witnessed a day like this. And he's already been in Capernaum before that. Um, but this was different. This is different. And I love this. The Savior was joyful in the joy that he had awakened. And as oh, he witnessed hot. the sufferings of those who had come to him, his heart was stirred with sympathy. And I love this. And he rejoiced in his power to restore them to health and happiness. Oh, look what I wrote. Look what I wrote right there. Cool idea. Yeah. I just thought that's such a cool idea. Yeah. The Savior's rejoicing in the joy that's being awakened, and he's rejoicing in the power that he has to bring people to joy. Because he had sympathy for them. So he rejoiced yeah, over the fact that good. I see that there's a need here and that there's something I can do about it. I can it. do. And we, don't and you I want to love... close on the thought with that. Okay, so, so I love helping people. It's just, a, it's yeah. just I don't know. I, it's a part of... I love networking people. I love helping people. I love being a blessing to people. And when I have been able, in some limited way or maybe some large way... To, to be in someone's life and to help them in some circumstance, in some situation, it can be a really simple thing or a really easy... I, it brings me so much joy. D, I'm not kidding you. It brings me more joy than almost anything else I do to see other people being benefited by something that I have done or said or encouraged or advised. Mm-hmm. And that's Jesus here. Jesus has this incredible joy because he's seeing people that are being benefited. He's using his powers for the upbuilding of the kingdom and character of God. And when people are blessed by it, he's blessed by their blessing. Mm-hmm. This is Proverbs eleven twenty five. He that waters will be watered himself, right? You yeah. spill a little water on yourself, right? The, the joy just overflows. I love that line there, by yeah. the way. 
The air was filled with the voice of triumph and shouts of deliverance. Mm. That sounds like a good old-fashioned African-American religious worship service. Shouts of triumph and deliverance. Mm. In the church I just pastored in, in Australia, beautiful people, some of the most godly, wonderful people I ever knew, but they never shouted or said amen. I was in like preaching purgatory for six and a half years. <laughs> the best people in the world, but an absolute allergy to I've saying amen or there. praise the Lord. Come on, people. And some nothing, of them, I nothing. literally had one of my dearest church members who I love with all my heart, Darnell. She came up to me after one particularly fiery sermon where everybody sat in absolute silence. She said, oh, pastor, this is at the door. Oh, pastor, that sermon was so powerful. She said, I felt like jumping up on my chair and shouting hallelujah. I was like, yeah, next time, Darnell, don't resist that temptation. But the Australians Don't can't. quench the spirit. Don't, they can't do it. <laughs> I love my Australian brothers and sisters. And I'm actually applying for my Australian citizenship right now. And my wife and my son. My, my oldest son is already a citizen of Australia. But I love these people. But man, you get them in a church service and they just turn into church mice. They yes. can't, they cannot. That's so I love this. Shouts yes. of deliverance and triumph. Preach. Um, I've underlined here in Capernaum, he was welcomed. And I just wrote in the margin, unlike Nazareth. Yeah, and she makes that point. She yeah. makes the point. Um, he, he was kind of, he, yeah. What else you got? You got anything else for me here? No, we'll, we'll, for time's sake, we'll just keep it moving. Well, so on the last page, I'm on the very last page. This is page 290, 291. I thought this was really good as we get ready to bring this to a close. Jesus was not satisfied to attract yeah. attention to himself merely as a wonder worker or a healer of physical diseases. He was seeking to, here's our word, draw men to himself as their savior. While the people were eager to believe that he had come as a king, and Jesus is gonna come up right. hard against that in John yeah, 6. John They're just gonna to try to take him by force and make right. him the king. They're like, oh, Get he's too here. humble, he's too modest, he's too demure, we'll make him the king. To establish an earthly reign, he desired to turn their minds away from the earthly to the spiritual. Mere worldly success would interfere with his work. That's and this contrast again. The contrast, and she yeah. uses the word mere twice there. Mm -hmm. Not merely a worker of wonders and not merely earthly success because she's trying to draw their mind from the earthly to the eternal, right? From the earthly to the eternal, from the temporal to the lasting. Yeah. And, and I think this is, again, part of the reason why Jesus did not always perform every available miracle that was there for him because he right. knew that certain kinds of miracles and certain kinds of situations and contexts could actually meteor, could make, his pop, could make his popularity so meteoric in its rise and ascendancy that it would actually short circuit his larger mission, which is to get to the cross. He knows where he's going. Nobody else knows where he's going. They think he's going to the throne. And he is going to a throne of sorts, but it's the strangest throne the world has ever seen. They, it's two pieces of wood. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, that, that's why he told the disciples, John and James, like, we want to sit each on your right and on your left. He's like, Lord, no, you don't. You didn't know what you're asking. You don't know. You're asking. You to think be you want to sit with, with me? Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. Are you able to say, oh yeah, we're able. Yeah, we want to be on the right and the left. And Jesus, is like, no, you don't. No, you don't. You think you do, but you don't. No. She closes with one last big contrast. In the last two paragraphs. Yeah, last a mark. Paragraphs. Yeah, 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 go. Bring it. Uh, so the Pharisees sought distinction by their scrupulous ceremonialism and the ostentation of their worship and charities. They proved their zeal for religion by making it the theme of discussion. 
Disputes between opposing sects were loud and long, and it was not unusual to hear on the streets the voice of angry controversy from learned doctors of the law. Yeah, so what you learn on. to expect from religious people is chippy, narcissistic, argumentative religion. But in marked contrast, she says, to Thank all you. this was the life I of Jesus. I underline that. Not just the, worth, the words, the life of Jesus. In that life, no noisy disputation, no ostentatious worship, no act to gain applause was ever witnessed. Christ was hid in God, and again, she says, God was revealed in the character of his son. She I got it all underlined. Times. Yeah. I wrote Colossians 3.3 3 there in the margin, because yeah. that's very, you know, your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's very Moses in the mountain. Absolutely. Um, oh, that's great. And, I, and she says, to this revelation, Jesus desired the minds of the people to be directed. Don't look at these fools. Look at, look at God and their homage to be given. And again, going back to my real passion and burden for the great, universal, inclusive, Abrahamic promise, this really, this did not sit well with me, and you read it already, but I'm gonna repeat it. The Pharisees sought distinction by their scrupulous ceremonialism. I want yeah. you to hear that word, distinction. To be distinct, to be separate from, to be different, to be aloof, to be better than, Yeah. right? Better than, I'm better than you, because I am a pious Jew, I'm a religiously devout Jew, I'm a scribe, I'm a liar, I'm a, a Pharisee, and we Jews collectively are better than them. This whole better than hierarchy, they wanted to be distinct, and yet here comes God in the flesh, and what does he want to do? What was the, again, what was the central charge of the religious leaders against Jesus? This man receives sinners yeah, and sinners. eats with them. Yeah. He did not want a distinction. And she says this phrase, he actually says it in this chapter, I didn't highlight it, but she, I highlighted it, but I didn't mention it. She says several times, he, un, he made them to feel that he united or linked, she uses both words, his, interest with his interests with theirs. Yeah. And you know those kinds of people. Yeah. You know when you are interacting with somebody that's listening to you, that's hearing you, that loves you, that wants what's best for you, and you think, I can trust this person. This person wants what's best for me. They rejoice in my wins. They're not threatened by them. Thank you. They're very Barnabas. Yeah. Barnabas-like. Yes. Barnabas rejoiced in the wins and the success of others. I want to be that person. Yeah, same. I want to be that person, and I just yeah. love the idea here that, that they were trying to make themselves so distinct, so different, so better than. And friend, let me just say this to you as a Christian. There should be no part of your life, no part of your religion or your ministry in which people come to feel that you are setting yourself up as better than or over than or superior to others. We come alongside people. And even sometimes they might say really offensive or terrible things, but we have to hear those things, if and when that happens, as cries for help. Yeah. And don't come immediately yes. to the defense. Mm. Say it again for the people in the yeah, back. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I'm going to read the last paragraph here because it was too good. Please, and, and talk twice as loud beginning on that line. <laughs> okay, I will. <laughs> last paragraph, here we go, wrapping this up. The Son of Righteousness did not burst upon the world in splendor to dazzle the senses with his glory. It is written of Christ, his going forth is established as the morning, Hosea 6.3. Quietly and gently, the daylight breaks upon the earth, dispelling the shadow of darkness and waking the world to life. Yes, sir. Come on. Yes. So did the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness, arise with healing in his wings. Yes, Lord. And there's something going on there in that Malachi chapter 4, verse 2 passage, which we'll get to. Do you know that? The healing in his... Yeah, yeah. That fringes thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so good. I can't wait to yeah. get there. Friends, this, this chapter, glory upon glory upon glory. We've already gone almost 80 minutes. 
So what we want to do is quickly do our rubric. Yeah. I'm more in love with Jesus after reading that chapter than I was before I read the chapter. How could you not be? Yeah. I mean, the picture that's painted there, like I've said before, again and again, worth. you got your money's worth. Yeah. As I've said again and again, the good news, the gospel, the best conceivable good news, right? As Alvin Plantinga says, it's the greatest story, not the greatest story ever told, but the greatest story that ever could be told is made up of two parts. Number one, there is a God. And number two, he looks like this. Mm -hmm. He looks like Jesus. Yes. Friends, there's no better good news than that. Okay, here we go. Um, so D, I go down, you, did you do this? I, I go down so. what I call the point, the person, the prayer, the practice, the power. Yeah. So for you, in summary, what was the point of this chapter? Uh, the contrast between Jesus' dealings with people and the devil's dealings with people um, in both, both aspects. There's two different tracks of contrast and that his power exceeds theirs. Okay, that's very similar to what I wrote. I wrote, to describe the beauty, authority, glory, and strategy of Jesus against the backdrop of conflict with antagonistic forces, both seen and unseen. Yeah. Same, same. Yeah. Different words. Um, okay, how about the person? What did you learn about the person of Jesus? Like, what was the message here um, about God? What is God like? Well, that Jesus came to reveal the true character of the Father. She said that multiple times. Yeah, preach. And uh, I think my favorite part was this section here, that he, as he witnessed the sufferings of those who had come to him, his heart was stirred with sympathy, and he rejoiced in his power to restore them to health and yeah. happiness. And, the picture yeah. of God rejoicing... Like, I could do something. Like, when, you, when you're in a situation it, it where there's a need, he rejoices over us with singing? Yes. Oh, what a, what a picture. When you're in a situation where, there's, where someone is hurting or has a need, because you love helping people, as do I, yeah. and you know that it's within your ability to do something about that, to relieve yeah. their suffering, there's few better feelings. Thank you. And there's such a practical lesson I got from that, because there are many times in ministry where I'm moved with compassion for people, and yet I feel powerless. That what they're going through is so heavy, Great it's so point. dark, Great it's so point. difficult, and I feel powerless. You can and get above your pay grade really quick as a pastor. Oh, my days. And so when this happens, it's so easy to get discouraged. But I take consolation in the fact that Jesus is not powerless. Thank you. Yes. That I don't have to have their solution, but yeah, I can point right. them to the one who does. What you're saying is so good there. I tell young pastors all the time, keep reminding yourself. It's a mantra. Say it over and over again. I'm not the Savior. I yeah. point to the Savior. Yeah. I'm not the Savior. I point to the Savior. Yeah. Okay, so here's, here's what I had for the person. I wrote, and I just, these, this is a direct quotation here, that God has a sweet, sympathetic spirit, and he is simply, gloriously, and uniquely amazing. Yeah. I mean, I just want you to feel that. God has a sweet, sympathetic spirit. Hallelujah. Amen. Okay, how about the prayer? How can you pray this chapter? How can you meaningfully, and if, do you need a moment to think about it? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so let me do mine. Um, here's what I wrote. How, this is how I can pray this chapter. God, don't let me direct or control my own life on my own. Mm -hmm. Teach me how to yield control to you, your word, and your spirit, knowing that what you will do is set me free to be who you created me to be. Yeah. I don't want to control myself. I want to give control of my life over to him so that he can give it back to me as it was intended. Because if you put me in charge of my life, D, fully in charge of my life without divine intervention or help, it's not going to be good. Yeah. I think that my prayer is, is the way the, 
immensely attractive way in which Jesus did life. Like, God, I want to be able to live a life that looks like that. Yeah. That is continually seeing a need. Yeah. And the immediate instinct is to be of service, to be able to, to if I can't meet Ooh. that need, to point them to Jesus who can. I like that. that, that the my, instinct to be of service. Yes, that, that perpetual instinct that whenever I look upon a, upon a, upon a crowd, that's hard to say. It upon is on a crowd, a crowd and congregation. I, I did a hybrid word there just to, for efficiency. <laughs> I've sake. done that before. Um, that when I look upon a group of people, that my immediate instinct is to feel sympathy for them. Beautiful. And and to be available to meet that need. Okay. The practice. Um, how can we practice this chapter? And it overlaps with the prayer. But let me say what I got, and then that might give you a moment to sort of gather your thoughts. For me, I, I, this is pretty simple. This is what I see Jesus doing. Keep it simple, keep it real, keep it intentional, keep it inclusive. Absolutely. I see Jesus doing all of those things. Keep it simple, that's his teaching. Keep it real, be with the people, not distinct from them or different from them, certainly not superior. Keep it intentional. Remember that in your interactions with unbelievers or people that are not your followers of Jesus, influence is either flowing from you or to you. Yeah. And you want it flowing from you, actually from Jesus through you. And then finally, keep it inclusive. We want to be the kinds of people that feel safe in our yeah. presence. I what you got? That, How can you practice this? Um, I think all of us are yielding the power and authority of either Christ or Satan. Like that's that point that's kind of drawn out throughout this. And when we make even tiny concessions, um, we've made our decision. Mm. And I think recognizing the value of the decisions we make was an important one. Um, God can reach you even there, but true religion has true power to reach the lost and change the life and set the captive free. So that's kind of where I'm trying to, to keep my focus. Okay, well, listen, let's close with prayer, and then we'll be done. Thank you all for joining us for day 20, was it day 27 of DA with DA. Father in heaven, thank you for this lovely time that D and I have had together. Today was DA with DA and DC. And we just feel so honored, so blessed to have spent this time here. And Lord, help us to fall more and more deeply in love with yes. you, and with Jesus, Lord, as Dee said, he came out the backside of this chapter more in love with Jesus than he was when he went into it. And Father, mm -hmm. that's how I'm feeling about the whole book. Mm -hmm. And we're just so thankful for this book. We're thankful for the Gospels. And we are especially thankful for Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. Help us to live our lives today for him is our prayer in his name. Amen and amen. Amen.